So who here loves witchcraft? Right? Bet you probably weren't expecting that question this morning. But there, there certainly sounds to be parts about the idea of what we get shown to us as witchcraft, right? Parts that I like, right? That we might like. And I don't mean the evil kind of witchcraft or wizardry. I mean that fun kind of magic-y kind of stuff. You know, wave a wand and clean up my room. That kind of magic. There is an appeal for that, that sense of just getting things done, right? It just happens. You, you, you know what else we kind of like about magic? It just works, right? At least that's the way it's portrayed. When they do it, you just say the thing and the thing happens. But you do have to say that right. Right, Hermione? Right? It's leviosa, not leviosa. Right? You have to make sure you get the pronunciation right. So in movies and books, when we see this witchcraft and wizardry, whether um, or not the spell works isn't dependent on whether you understand it. It only if you can correctly say it. The spell stands alone. It's acontextual. It's just like pointing a gun. That's all you have to do. Too many Christians treat the Bible like a spell book. It's verses like spells. And the magic language is prayer. But this isn't magic. When we say in Jesus' name, it isn't a password that somehow gets us access to God or a magic phrase that channels His power to do what I want. We're Christians, not pagans. And I mention that just because it's easy to drift into the way that we might want things to be easier. You know, me-focused, me-driven, frankly, me-in-charge. The way that we frequently understand our relationship with God Unfortunately, the way we think of it is frequently slavery, right? I just have to do whatever it is that he says that I have to do, no matter how much I don't want to do that thing. And if I don't, he will smiteth me um, or fire lightning bolts at me. And I, just so you know, that's Zeus or Jupiter, okay? That's not God the Father. Just clarifying for you, we get confused. We don't tend to like the idea of serving. We don't trust servanthood. And this is because we are frequently brought up to believe that serving another is weakness. But it's not out of weakness that one serves God, but out of strength and out of love. That strength is the partnership with God. And when you work with God, things have a particular way of looking. The question that we ask should never be, is this action liberal? or conservative? Is, is it capitalist or socialist? Is it woke or anti-woke? The question should be, does this honor God by loving my neighbor, putting their interests before mine, and living out the growing fruit of the Spirit? So we test our actions by their fruit. What does it look like after I did what I did? When you work with partnership, when you work in partnership with God, the fruit should appear Christ-like. It should look like Jesus, and it should, over time, make me appear more like Jesus in my demeanor and my attitudes. I should see growing in myself an ever-increasing measure of the fruit of the Spirit, partnership with the Father through the work of the Son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, should increasingly smell like love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, forbearance, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and that is one fruit, not ten. For the fruit to grow strong, healthy, vibrant, it requires that ongoing proximity to the life source. The vine must remain attached to the branches. You know, words can mean a bunch of different things. And the, and the way that you understand them um, can make such a difference in, in your ability to go forwards well or to go forward not so well. Uh, and Jesus gave us a beautiful picture of what this looks like, okay? So if you want to turn to it, you can. John chapter 15, starting at verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Five, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain in me. It's another way of saying abide. But we tend not to use the word abide so much anymore because it sounds so, I don't know, official, so formal, so proper. But it's a powerful word, and it has depth and carries deep meaning. Abide. It can mean tolerate. I already told you that I would abide by your decision. You can flip it around the other way. It can also mean to not tolerate. You could say, if there is one thing I cannot abide, it is the smearing of honey on my doorposts. I can't abide that. Um, it can also mean uh, stable unwavering, kind of a, the, the, the fixed state. I will abide with him for the rest of my life. We are locked in together. We are in it through thick and thin. We are there for better or for worse. We are there in sickness and in health. We are partnered. <clears throat> Tim okay. Keller describes that God partnership happening in and through prayer. Prayer is such a key part of it. The basic purpose of prayer, he says, is not to bend God's will to mine. Unfortunately, that's what we'd all prefer. But to mold my will into his. Shane Claiborne describes the transformative uh, partnership with God being laid out in the practice, the ongoing practice of prayer. He says, a primary purpose of prayer is to impress on us the personality and character of Christ. And for those of us who were just frankly a little bit hesitant about all this God stuff um, and, and, and not really ready to start any sort of relationship with Him just much, thank you very much, I want to know a little bit more about what this entails, just who am I getting partnered up with anyways? What is that going to look like? So I want you to hear the words of Jesus, laying it all out in the open, the way He sees it. John 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, Remain in my love. Ten, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. Eleven, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Twelve, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Tell me a little bit more about this love, Jesus. You're going to show this, but what does it look like? Just just who am I to you, Jesus, continues in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for one's friends. 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. 15, I no longer call you servants because a master does not 
uh, a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. 17. This is my command. Love each other. It just comes back to that one again and again. That's the business. As God's friend, chosen by Him, go out, get busy, do what He's asked you to do, love each other, bear fruit that will last. And as you begin, you will notice that number one, the line between God's work and ours will disappear. The praying life is talking with God about what, what we're thinking, about what we're doing together. It's co-laboring with God to accomplish the good purpose of His kingdom. We don't build the kingdom of God, but we announce it. We seek it. We receive it. We point at it. We bear witness for it. We build for it. God builds it. Prayer is how God welcomes us into what He's doing and how we welcome God into what we're doing. And as we grow in the practice, the line between his work and our work, well, it becomes increasingly fuzzy so that the difference no longer matters. If I focus on potential threats, if I see my mission as avoiding pain, if I focus on obeying God, I'll see my mission as requiring pain. It's unavoidable. That's where we're going. Acts 1 verse 4 says, on one occasion, while uh, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. Five, for John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Six, then they gathered around him and, and, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Kingdom to Israel, seven. He said to them, it is not for you to know the time nor the dates the Father has set by his own authority, eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, and, and then in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. From the very beginning, God involved humanity in the creative work by allowing him to name the animals. And that dignity of uh, co-laboring with God, that's a privilege that was given to no other creature. Similarly, repeatedly, throughout the extensive biblical narrative, we see the example, and then another example, and then another example of God involving humans in activities that He could have easily and more effectively accomplished alone. Did He really need Moses to let my people go? Did Jesus really require the participation of fishermen, tax collectors, and other regular, broken, messed up people to spread the announcements of his kingdom? For his own reasons, however, it has delighted God to do his work, at least in part, through us and with us. That's a really big deal. We are not merely uh, passive stage props in a prefab pre-written cosmic drama. We are creative partners with God in the writing, in the directing, in the design, and the action that occurs on the stage of history. 
For that reason, prayer is so much more than just asking God for one thing or another. It is partnering with Him by drawing deep into communion with His Spirit. And in that intimate union, taking up our special vocation as His people. In prayer, we are invited to join Him, directing the course of His world, not to take over for Him. We, we do that sometimes. And it never goes well. In two centuries, the church grew from one single room in Jerusalem to countless congregations in Africa and Europe and Asia without government support or acts of violence. In fact, just the opposite. Our work, when we, when we put our hands on it, it needs to smell like Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit. When, when the fruit smells like us, the whole world knows because it stinks like death. What we want keeps getting jumbled up and mixed in. So even as we pray to God for His will to be done, Father, may Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are frequently hoping it really will be done our way. Number two, so how do our prayers change God's actions? There's a couple of ways to think about this, okay? First of all, God's will is dominant. God is sovereign, so therefore prayer is pointless. Second, the prayer is a, a, a subtle form of control. God's will is, is flexible. Human agency is real, so we are really kind of in charge. Third, God's will rules. God is sovereign, and our prayers are wrapped up in and around His will. And prayer is a mystery. And i got to tell you that I am comfortable with God and mystery together. Uh, I, I don't get right now how it all works perfectly. From where I stand, I just don't understand it completely. God's sovereignty plus human agency equals prayer's mystery. So if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and unchanging, which is omniscient, omnipotent, and uh, immutable, you're welcome, party words, uh, what real influence can our prayers possibly have on Him? Can prayers really change God's mind? And our modern mind gets into a bit of a problem here. We get snagged up on this either-or scenario. Either our prayers change God's mind, and so He is not immutable, or they don't change God's mind, and prayer is kind of pointless. And that's one of the key differences between modern minds and ancient minds. We think we're really smart, but there's a lot that we don't understand. And the ancients were much more comfortable with the mystery of both and not either or. For example, the Apostle Paul, he lays out this mystery to his friends in the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You do it. You work it out. How? That single thought, it wasn't complete. It continues in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. And so in our modern way of thinking, we want to reply, go, wait, Paul, hold up, hold up, hold up, wait a minute. Who's doing the work? Is it me or is it God? But that isn't a question 
that he is the least bit interested in answering. Because it isn't a question that a pre-modern person would ask. That same sort of indifference applies to prayer. Scripture rejects our question, is God sovereign or do prayers make a difference? We keep wanting to say, how does it work exactly? Lay it out for me. Show me the blueprint. And the truth is, I haven't a clue. I don't know how it all works out. What I do know is that God desires to manifest himself and his reign over the world through us, with us. We, we have been called to co-labor with him. We are invited, we are even commanded to make our requests known to God in prayer. In a mystery, beyond my understanding, our will and God's will are mingled together, just as his spirit and our spirit abide together in the stillness of prayer. Romans 8.26, he joins us here. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. 27, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The concept expands here a little bit more about who and what we're dealing with. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. 19, and his incomparably great power for, though, for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength, 20, that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms 21, far from above all authority uh, and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That is who we are linked with. We are empowered by. We have been chosen by. We are involved with. We are not to mess it all up. And that's why it's so important that we abide in Him, to remain in Him. We are in it together. So it really matters when we do uh, and say things, especially public things, that claim Him as our leader, our guide, our master, but then those things that we have claimed in his name, they stink like death and not like life. And we deny him in our actions. Prayer with no action is passivity. Action with no prayer is pride. Prayer plus action equals power. And, and although we, we assume so often that faith means calling out to our Heavenly Father for help, sometimes obedience means 
not praying. Sometimes mature faith means acting with the authority and the resources He's already granted us as His beloved children. And too often, we separate God's actions from our own. We assume God's intervention requires our passivity. And we think taking action ourselves reveals a lack of faith in God's providence. Faith over fear, right? This is an immensely powerful truth. A message of guidance and hope to our Christian culture and to our surrounding secular culture in the right now. It is applied theology to us right now in this world that we are living. Prayer is not opposed to action. When we act in cooperation with God, our actions become a form of prayer that is pleasing to Him. Our actions will smell like the Spirit at work in us. The fruit will grow. It will become evident. What does that fruit look like again? You forgot? What should your actions be filled with? Love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And again, that is one fruit, not ten different ones. Number three, we must be careful not to abuse our authority. Consumerism has largely obscured any vision of redemptive suffering. And Christians in such cultures, they falsely conclude that all suffering is contrary to God's will. When pain or struggle does arise, they employ the idea of authoritative prayer to denounce it or the evil forces assumed to be causing it. And if the suffering persists, the Christian is left to conclude that it was just their weak faith. They must have been at fault. And this just compounds the weight of suffering on the weight of one's own failure. Authoritative prayer can harm when it is linked to what fancy pants theologians call an over-realized eschatology. That's just a fancy way of saying uh, to describe the fullness of all of God's kingdom as being already here right now and believe that all evil, all suffering, and all injustice have already been completely defeated. Such Christians assume that their life with Christ should be an unbroken sequence of victories, from victory to victory. It's a vision of following Jesus that is all resurrection and no crucifixion. In truth, proper engagement with authoritative prayer requires great maturity and wisdom, humility, patience. It means developing an intimacy with God that produces uh, knowledge of His will in us. It means discerning when to tell that mountain to move and when the Lord is calling you to accept the mountain by painfully climbing its cliffs. This is only done in close partnership with God. Four, prayer is how we connect others to God. When we pray for someone else, we are exercising our priestly calling as an image bearer of God. It's in any religious tradition, a priest is someone who stands between God and others, serves as a mediator between them. The priest is a bridge joining the human to the divine. While we often see the priesthood just as a special vacation, a vocation only for select individuals, they're the only ones that are allowed in, it's not always been this way. In the beginning, the Lord created all people in His image to be the bridge between himself 
and the rest of all creation. We are all created to be priests. As a way we pray, a functioning, we're functioning as a bridge, connecting God to his creation, connecting others who need God to his healing presence. That's what we are called to be about. And in this priestly position, the two greatest commandments are fulfilled in a single act. First, we actively love the person we are praying for by carrying them into God's presence, which is the greatest good we can ever do for another. Second, we are loving our Lord by expressing our dependence on Him as well as our trust in His character. So remember this mystical reality, Matthew 18, 20, for where there are two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. When we are gathered with Christ in our midst, what should we be about? Timothy was the Apostle Paul's young pastoral protege. And in 1 Timothy 2, we can listen in on some of the behind-the-scenes training that he was given them. Paul says to Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Two, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Three, this is good and pleases God our Savior. Four, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Five, for there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Six, who gave himself as a ransom to all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. Will, will everything always go the way that we would prefer? Does our limited vision see the future clearly enough in all circumstances to know God's will and God's plan right now? 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, to take it away from me. Nine, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness, even if you don't like it. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Ten, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, the Apostle Paul has discovered, then I am strong. Trust. Trust when it feels like God is smiling on you and, and things are going the way you want. But trust even more when things are not going the way that you might want. Trust is not easy. There's always going to be multiple voices to discern. So get familiar with the voice. Know the voice. Listen to the voice. Follow the one who owns the voice. You are not supposed to do it on your own. But you are called. You have been promised that you will go forward in partnership. Get linked. Stay linked. Your link to God is your link to life, hope, peace, love. That link looks like partnership with God the Father Almighty. What a blessing for us to have that opportunity. And so I encourage you again, follow the one who calls you forward. Kind Father, thank you for 
the way that you have opened your heart to us. You have welcomed us into your midst. And there's all kinds of reasons why we don't qualify. Our resume doesn't, uh, doesn't add up. We don't have all the necessary skills and training. We don't have the, the recent updates, the new classes. And somehow still you have looked at us and said, I can work with you. I want to work with you. The way that I would like this to go forward is for you to be involved and, and, and to have your eyes on me like that is sometimes overwhelming. And I'm sure that, that, that my friends here that are listening this morning might feel that way sometimes too, to have that knowledge that the eyes of God on me in that welcoming me in kind of way, we can be left unsure of what to do. But you promised to bring us with you to provide what we need to get what you have asked us to do done. And so today, even though it feels kind of uncomfortable, we want to, again, practice putting our trust in you, our faith in you, your character, your personhood. We depend on you. And we know that you have the power to do what it is that you've started to do because the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that becomes available to us to be living our lives empowered by your Spirit. And so God, we thank you. Help us to understand the gifts that we have been given. Our presence in Christ is way bigger than we can get at first glance. So when I open my mouth, when we open our mouths to other people and share what we think about what's going on in different places, would you give us a pause at the beginning to ask that you would be present in our speech and our demeanor, that you would inform our attitudes, and that as the words come out of my mouth, out of our mouths, that they would smell like Jesus. I've had enough of me saying things that smell like death to people around me. I don't want that anymore. Use my words to bring about life. Use the words of my friends to bring about life that we would be right in your eyes before we worry about being right in any other eyes. My friends, eyes up on Jesus. Jesus first, everything else after. It is our desire to follow you. So speak to us, please. Meet with us, please, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.